You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. Before I introduce our guest, I wanted to mention that I was a guest myself on the More Than Profit podcast from Access Ventures. You should be able to find that in your podcast player. If not, anchor.fm slash more than profit is their website. It was in December. So listen in, hope you enjoy. You can learn more about what we're up to at Purpose Built. Today's guest is Shannon Farley, who's co-founder and executive director of Fast Forward. She's an experienced social entrepreneur, including being the founding executive director of Spark, the world's largest network of millennial philanthropists. Prior to joining Spark, Shannon helped start the W. Haywood Burns Institute, a MacArthur Award-winning juvenile justice reform organization. She has a BA in American Studies from Georgetown and an MS in Gender and Social Policy from the London School of Economics. We talk a lot about tech nonprofits and often startup tech nonprofits. So just a reminder what those are. A tech nonprofit, the tech comes for leverage or scale by using technology to deliver the service. And then nonprofit meaning charitable purpose with donors, not owners. And a startup meaning new and seeking to grow. Fast Forward celebrates nine years of accelerating dozens of tech nonprofits. And in this episode, we discuss when to choose a for-profit versus a nonprofit model, the definition to more depth of a tech nonprofit. We talk about the capital crunch that many experience and how to solve it. We talk about compensation levels in nonprofits. And we talk about their new program at Fast Forward, their growth accelerator, plus a lot more. So please stay tuned. Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Miles. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, let's jump right in. If a founder is choosing between a for-profit or a nonprofit model, what advice would you give them? To make the decision as early as possible, because it's not about the tax status, but it's about the customer that you're building for. You will build a very different product if you imagine a world in which you want it to be a for-profit versus a nonprofit. You know, there's a couple of reasons you might want to be a nonprofit. If you're interested in building a product that is grounded entirely in trust, folks mostly still trust the nonprofit sector. So being a nonprofit model can really work. If there's a market failure in which there's no reason, there's no financial reason for investors to back the idea because there's not going to be a big payout, that might be a good space to be a nonprofit. And then from that moment, you build everything differently. Say more about how things are different. There's some real advantages to the nonprofit model. Sometimes you can, the one of the advantages is there's much lower marginal costs. You can get cloud storage for free. You can often get early software licenses for free. You can often get great professional volunteers for free. Pro bono, leaning into pro bono can be a real difference maker for nonprofits. And that same exchange doesn't exist in the for-profit world. Now, you said your customer is going to be different. Does that mean the donor is your customer? It depends. Most nonprofits are set up kind of like media companies in that the person using your good thing may not be the person buying the good thing. So an example would be Wikipedia, right? I think the whole world uses Wikipedia, but not everybody donates to make Wikipedia run. 
So the customer is really all of us who use it on a regular basis. And then Wikipedia has to come up with a financial model that engages donors with a different use case. It may be that they're interested in having the world's library free and accessible to all. It also may be that a donor is interested in expanding Wikipedia into new issue areas or new languages that didn't exist before. So you would create a product for that donor in addition to your product, which is your core impact model, how many people are accessing this wonderful resource. And is that harder or easier to do? to have multiple product customer sets? You know, it's a good question. It is hard. <laughs> it's really hard because you do have to build sort of two things at once. But in the last few years coming out of the pandemic or coming into whatever the stages we're in now, I think there's a lot of people who are looking for more meaning in their lives and in their work lives. So the things that make a nonprofit business model tough the sort of media company structure can often be outweighed by having a gig in which you know exactly why you're showing up to work every single day. So what does hard mean? I guess I would put it back to you, Miles. I wanted to get your view on it. I think what you're saying is that the mission orientation and feeling like you're making a real difference can make whatever complexity or extra work worth it. I wonder if you would view there to be additional risk in starting a for-profit versus a nonprofit, or are they similar? Your starting organization, both are risky. The thing about risk in a nonprofit model is that we're often talking about human lives. If you're building a health tech company or education company that you've decided to have a nonprofit, you're likely serving a customer that has been totally ignored or disregarded, which might be worse. And so one of the things we work with our founders on is how do you make sure that you're moving fast and innovating and creating the best possible solution for the person that you want to serve. But we also spend a lot of time talking about how to make sure you're doing that responsibly in a way that doesn't hurt or exacerbate the pain of the people that you're serving. Is it, so there's that kind of existential risk in a nonprofit organization the risk of will you fail is probably the same across for-profits and nonprofits. Nonprofits do tend to eke along for a little bit longer, even if it's not really working, because you can generally figure out how to get enough money in the door compared to for-profits, where if it's not working, the key is to get out as fast as possible. So you can end up working on something for longer that isn't really scaling. Yeah, I think that's sort of one of the hangovers we have in the social sector at the moment is that... There are a lot of nonprofits that are kind of middling in their impact. We see it more in the brick and mortar nonprofit space, the traditional nonprofit space, than we do in the tech nonprofit space. But yeah, they're kind of eking along and not having as much impact as they could. And we are increasingly seeing calls for mergers or acquisitions within our the social sector. I don't know if that will solve all the problems. Some of it's a capital problem more than a idea or desire problem. Now, before we continue, use that term tech nonprofit. Do you mind defining that for the audience? To us at Fast Forward, tech nonprofits are product companies, mostly software product companies, but increasingly there's some hardware companies that have chosen to be a nonprofit because they want to focus 100% of their energies on maximizing their impact rather than their profits. Now, it's a little confusing because the term nonprofit is in there. Many of these organizations actually do earn revenue, 
either by licensing their software or working with governments or other entities to pay fee for services for this work. So there are different income streams than we often see in traditional nonprofits, but the focus really is on how can you serve the most people in the best way that you possibly can. And the most successful, famous examples include Wikipedia, who you mentioned, and who else? Sure. Like the household names are Wikipedia, Khan Academy, Kiva, Donors Choose. These are organizations that all have software at the core of their generally distribution model. And that is what made them scale and become profoundly impactful over the years. Now, you mentioned there's been calls for some nonprofits that aren't scaling to merge with others. I I have the impression that's fairly uncommon. It is uncommon at the moment. I think it's going to increase. We often see calls for this during economic downturns. Like in 2008, there were lots of calls for mergers and some pretty famous mergers went through. Today, we're increasingly seeing that. We're seeing groups thinking about how you can be as efficient with your resources while maximizing impact. And there can be great reasons to do that if you're serving the same customer and you want to make sure that you're providing a suite of services, it can be a capital efficient way to get there. There are other challenges with it. Just it's hard to merge organizations in general in the for-profit and the nonprofit space. So there can be some risk associated with it, but it's an interesting development we're seeing. Now you mentioned a capital problem. How do you see the capital landscape for tech nonprofits and where are the holes? Yeah, it is an emergent sector. So fast forward, we had our ninth birthday yesterday, January 17th. Happy birthday. Thank you. We're pretty excited. And when we started, there were really only a handful of donors that were sort of outed as being interested in tech applied to social causes, sort of Google.org being the most famous of those donors. In the last decade, We've seen a few more donors come to the fold. And actually, COVID was a really interesting moment um, in which many tech nonprofits were really the only social services providers that could stand up products and services when everybody else was at home. Tech nonprofits were purpose-built for it. So we saw huge growth in impact and usage across tech nonprofits. Um, that has resulted in a new class of donor that we're pretty excited about that is infusing capital. It is much earlier, it is much easier to raise early money as a tech nonprofit through accelerator programs and fellowships. There's still like a capital crunch uh, for tech nonprofits right before you hit product market fit, which is pretty tough. But we're seeing a few more organizations sort of navigate that capital valley and come out successful. So that capital crunch, what causes that? The thing about building technology is that the way you can build great technology is a little out of order for the way that traditional philanthropists think about investing in something. The example I like to use is a soup kitchen. So if you believed you could find hungry people and feed them well, you could start a soup kitchen in your home and you'd find the folks and find the donors and get the food and prove over time that you could grow that impact you know, incrementally and become a great service to your community. If you wanted to build the app that would help you find soup kitchens with the right hours and the right kind of dietary restrictions served and diapers, that's actually, you need more money in the beginning to do that. And so it can be really challenging to find the amount of money you need to start 
a tech nonprofit. So we see a lot of tech nonprofits sort of eking along a little bit, even though there's cash. And then right when things start to get a little bit more expensive because you're using more cloud services or you need to hire a couple extra people, there just aren't that many donors playing in that space. It's gotten better post-COVID, but we haven't solved all of the capital challenges. And you're talking about hiring people. The capital requirements seem like they'd be higher in a tech nonprofit because you're competing against the private sector that is notorious for paying a lot for tech skills. Yes, it is really challenging, especially because one of the things about engineers, developers, designers, data scientists is that there's a huge difference between good ones and bad ones. And so you want to pay a decent amount of money so that you can get really good talent in the door. So it's expensive upfront. The cost per unit of impact goes down exponentially as you scale your impact. So it pays off in the end, but it can be tough to navigate those first early years when you're building and growing at the same time. What do you think is the donor's view on compensation? Are they willing to pay market salaries? It's pretty interesting. I think there is this generation of tech donors that gets it. We see that increasingly with McKinsey Scott or google.org, others in the space that like build technology, get technology, and they're willing to invest in great people to solve our biggest challenges. Where we tend to get pushback is from traditional philanthropists who just haven't seen salaries at the near market level in nonprofits. And so they're still resistant to it. They're just, yeah, not always comfortable with it. You get a lot of questions about it. The cost per unit of impact can be so low compared to the amount of impact coming in that you can sometimes convince them. But it's a challenge. And as a sector in general, I think we're trying to raise all the wages because folks have been paid too low for too long. And we want smart, talented folks to be in the sector. What else do you think is missing in the ecosystem, whether it's a type of capital, a resource, or a set of beliefs? Yeah, it's... Capital continues to be one of the biggest challenges, particularly for tech nonprofits, in part because folks don't always get technology. So traditional philanthropists might be a little hesitant to invest in a tech nonprofit. Also, folks who've made their money in tech, many of them are quite young and are new to philanthropy. So they're not quite giving as we see in other sectors that have more established philanthropic practices like the financial industry or law, where there's sort of a professional expectation of philanthropy that hasn't developed as much in the tech world. It's getting better, but it's not quite where we need it to be. So where do you see it going or how would you propose that that tradition end up? Like, is it, is it a percentage? Is it just a season of life or... Like what What should be that expectation? I think so much can be gained personally and professionally from giving away wealth that you have created. It is one of the most powerful ways to learn about issues that maybe you have some exposure to, but not that much or have no exposure to at all. It can be a powerful way to act as a responsible citizen where you live and run your business. So my recommendation is always to do it as early as possible so that you can really learn throughout your life we both have young kids. It's a great thing to do with your kids. So when you have young kids, instilling that early in who they are and how they show up in the world can help make wonderful humans as they become adults. So I'm less concerned about the percentage, like a tithing model, and more about 100% participation. 
It's one of the things Fast Forward has always done. Like we work really closely with tech leaders to introduce them to social justice issues that maybe they've never seen before. They understand the technology. They understand the underlying architecture of what these nonprofit founders are building, but maybe they're new to the social issue. So it's a way that you can bridge these worlds that brings in capital that's necessary, but also context that might be missing from both parties. Thank you for that. Yeah. Does it help our perspective? So if you're wondering how to get involved, should I get involved? You're saying just start even in a small way, involve your family, involve your kids and learn as you go. Absolutely. It's, you know, Gandhi was one of the best philanthropists in the world and one of the best teachers of philanthropy. And Gandhi, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically believed that if you don't have money in the game, you don't have skin in the game. And so if there's things you care about, one of the best ways to engage in it is to give what you have because it's precious and it will matter to the people who receive it on the other end. Now, switch shifting gears a little bit. You literally wrote the book on how to run a tech nonprofit. Um, that I think you guys call it a manual that you, you publish. Playbook. Playbook. We call playbook. it a playbook. Playbook. Yeah. You know, we've been um, doing this for like eight years. I mean, seven years when we wrote the playbook. And it was sort of all of the best insights that we had garnered from the most talented founders in the space, talenters that are founders that are super smart, and some of them have failed, some of them have been super successful. How you build social justice organizations to last the test of time. It was a really fun project because we got to interview all these people that inspire us and capture their insights and put it in a form that we hope will inspire a whole new generation of folks to be excited about tech for good. What's the most surprising thing in there that people might not realize? It's a business, right? You have to set it up as a business to be successful. You need to be thinking from day one, like what do you, what was your dream employment structure? What is your dream sales structure? What does your governance body look like? Like there are some nuts and bolts to running any business, even a nonprofit business that I think many folks are not focused on because they care about the product or they care about the impact. And it would just save you so many headaches in the future if you put a little bit of time and energy and love into building out the business itself, because then you can really focus on product and impact in a way with the underlying infrastructure. So being driven by the mission, having your heart in the right place, isn't a substitute for the principles of building an organization having proper governance. Yeah, like in the for-profit space, the parallel is there's lots of good ideas out there. There aren't always great executors out there. That is also true in the social impact world. There are lots of people who have ideas about how you can make the world better. Not everybody is able to execute against those ideas. So setting yourself up for success and execution can really help you scale your impact. Anything else you've learned since you wrote the playbook or changes you've made to it? One of the things I that's been really heartening is there are a number, we're seeing like encore career founders these days who are getting into the tech nonprofit space. Folks who've run impressive tech companies who are leaning into the playbook as a resource because the nonprofit lens is different than what they've seen before. I've always imagined that students would use it and founders who had never worked previously in a professional context would use it. I didn't imagine that there would be all of these Encore folks that would get value out of it. It's pretty exciting. These are people who you might assume have been there and done that, know what they're doing. 
And yet they're constantly looking for new information and finding the good stuff in your playbook. Yeah. Like I had a great conversation with one of the founders of Pinterest and Ben Silverman, and he just launched a tech nonprofit called the How We Feel Project, which is really cool. It's a way of checking in with your emotions and feelings on a regular basis so that you can track it over time to get insight into all sorts of things from mental health, your physical health, your environment. It's really beautifully designed. It actually just won the App Store Award. And he was telling me he was using the playbook to understand more about how nonprofit boards are structured. Nonprofit boards are a little weird, right? Like they're different than what you've seen in the for-profit space. So it can be this very help. Our dream is the playbook is a helpful tool for folks to maximize their impact wherever they are in their founder journey. Well, it's really well put together and I recommend it to people. You've also had some recent news in launching this growth accelerator, and I'd love to know more about that. Yeah, thank you. You know, Kevin Berenblatt, my co-founder and I, when we started Fast Forward, we really started with Startup Accelerator because we believed it was the first thing we could pull off. Like we figured we could get a little bit of money and some mentors from tech companies and supporters of this work and help get a few groups to scale. And we imagined 10 years in that there would be dozens of accelerators and incubators and seed funders like we'd seen develop in the for-profit world when Y Combinator started. Now there's thousands of accelerators and incubators. That has started to happen in the nonprofit sector, but like not to the scale that we want to see. And meanwhile, the problems we face from healthcare to education to criminal justice are bigger and more entrenched. Some of that is the result of the pandemic, but a lot of it is the result of a failed social safety net structure. So we wanted to see some of the breakout stars from the tech nonprofit sector everything they needed to become household names, to become the next generation of Wikipedia's and Khan Academies, with the vision that if we could have a handful more of breakout stars, maybe some of the other capital mechanisms and training mechanisms that we've seen in the for-profit space would start to bubble up in the nonprofit space. So we just launched it. We worked for a year with help of google.org, HPE Foundation, and others to build out a portfolio of organizations that we believe are some of the most impressive tech nonprofits in history. And we're working to get them money, real money, and context and resources that you need when you're a fast scaling company. Are there any examples of tech nonprofits that come through that program or others that you can talk about to give people a sense of what this is like? Sure. One of the organizations that was in our first cohort that is now in the Growth Accelerator is called Serum. Serum builds technology to allow folks to donate unused, unexpired prescription drugs and redistribute them to low-income folks and clinics throughout the country who need access to medicine. Many Americans choose can't afford their basic prescriptions. So they're often choosing between food or rent and taking their life-saving medication. Serum is solving that problem. Serum has been doing a great job of scaling. They, since we first met them when they were like working out of a teeny closet in Palo Alto to today, they have a full mail order pharmacy operation based in Georgia. They're expanding into other states. They have scaled a lot. 
and they've done much of the hard stuff that's required for a company that has those kinds of operations and logistics. What Serum really needs to get to this next level is money so that they can innovate on their technology while continuing to serve their customers at the highest level. But they also need support in what it go look what it feels like to go from a team of a couple dozen te- people to teams of 50 to 100. They need help thinking through like what how do you develop out a management layer when you really haven't had one previously. They need to tell a different story about who they are and where they've been at this level than they've previously had to do before. So we are coalescing all the resources you need to be at that level and supporting them as they go through. So this is past sort of seed stage. You've proven that you can deliver something of value and generate this impact at some level of scale, but you want to take it to a really large scale, which takes the next level of capital and the next level of of management and other expertise. Yeah, like Serum has been growing at like 60% per year every year for the last three years. That's the kind of growth that a for-profit startup would kill for. And if you were a for-profit, it probably would be pretty easy to raise the equivalent of a Series A round. Because there aren't donors that play at that level at this moment in the tech nonprofit space, Serum has been kind of eking along. But they are poised with the right amount of capital and support to get about a billion dollars worth of medicine into a million patients who need it the most. And so for... People like me and Kevin and fast forward, it feels like a no-brainer. If the barrier to success is really capital and context, those are bridges that we can let down and help people cross over. Awesome. Well, I look forward to hearing more about the accelerator and Serum in particular. You mentioned Kevin and the founding story a little bit. I'd love to dive into that. What was it like starting the organization itself? Your startup that helps startups. It's uh, it's very meta. <laughs> And it's a terrible, great idea. A nonprofit for nonprofits to advance nonprofits. But it was needed. I'm really lucky that I have had the good fortune to work at several nonprofit startups. And both were sort of early in the sector. One was a prison reform consulting firm in the early 2000s, before nonprofit consulting was a thing. And the next was a women's fund that was really an early tech nonprofit that used software and sort of the basics of crowdfunding to distribute money all over the world. And I was in this moment where I was like, how do we apply this emergent technology to new social justice use cases? And at the same time, Kevin, who is a tech founder, he built several tech companies and his most recent one at the time had been acquired, was on kind of a philanthropic walkabout. And this might be familiar to you, Miles, like as a person who education and professional training has been in tech companies, like one of the through lines of that is folks in tech really like to solve hard problems. And some of the hardest problems we face as a society are things where markets have failed from education, healthcare, and human rights. So he wanted to know, like, how as a tech person could you solve those kinds of hard problems rather than optimizing for someone's attention or maximizing profits for those who already have plenty? What would it look like if he used that education, those skill sets and applied it to these new use cases? And we were just really lucky. A friend knew that we both liked interesting, hard things 
And so sat us next to each other at a fundraiser for a different organization. And we just got to talking and the conversation continued for a couple of months. And then one day over margaritas, we decided just to go do it. It's been great ever since. It's been so fun. So in that moment of choosing to work together, what was it that convinced you you would be compatible? This was the co-founder for you. Yeah, Kevin and I are really different. So one of the things that was clear from those first coffee meetings was that the things I wanted to work on and the things that he wanted to work on were very different. And so we're like, oh, well, that could double our impact almost immediately if you're working on these things and I'm working on those things. We both were really aligned on why, like why it's important to advance social justice organizations and why we believe startups are one of the best ways to do that. So if, with that as the baseline, we could go sort of operate and do the things that each of us were best at in separate well, actually, we sat next to each other, like six inches away from each other for, we still do, this whole nine years. So we were working alongside each other, but really leaning into our different experiences. So different skills, complementary interests. And also different networks. Different yeah. networks. Different networks. I feel like you have a lot of founders who listen to this. That was one of the most profound things that both of us had been founders previously. So we had fully established networks. Being able to merge those networks really benefited both of us in our development, but also the organization as a whole. Well, thanks for sharing that. What's been the biggest challenge in growing the organization itself? The biggest challenge has been the amount that we want to do. Like we've been really lucky. We hit a few huge breaks early in fast forward. We had sort of miraculously our first donor who's been with us the whole time, Google.org is a powerful advocate in the space. So we had a famous marquee donor to get started. That made a big difference. Our first few classes really had some powerhouse breakout stars. So quickly, we were able to prove the impact of the accelerator itself. And then we have a lot of ideas. It's actually like our post-it wall of dreams of things that would make the sector grow faster. And so our lim core limitation is like, how do we execute against all those ideas and do it in a way that is best for people in the sector and the people these nonprofits serve? Because that's why we're here ultimately. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited to know what's on this wall of dreams. Anything you can share? Well, the growth accelerator had been on the wall for really nine years. Like, how would we do this? How would we get more capital from tech leaders into tech nonprofits? So that's the most recent one. Yeah, now we've been really leaning into thinking about hybrid environments and how networks of humans can, in the tech world and in the tech nonprofit world, could serve each other and learn from each other. And it doesn't matter if you're a backend engineer in Bangalore or you're a backend engineer in New Orleans, like you have a shared language and context that could help advance all of our dreams. And so we've been thinking about how you would lean into that. When you say hybrid, I'm thinking of in-person or online collaboration. I'm also wondering if you mean for-profit, non-profit. So could you, could you explain that uh, a little more? In hybrid, I mean in-person and online. For us, hybrid as a business model before a non-profit is really the hardest because you basically have to run two businesses at once. And when you're starting, it's hard enough to run one. So we highly recommend folks choose a model for profit or nonprofit. If down the road, like Mozilla, you end up making so much money that you need to create a for-profit subsidiary, that's fine. 
by that time, you have the staff and infrastructure to build that out as a legal entity. In the beginning, it can be the death of an organization. Thank you for that. that that's useful advice. So in this hybrid environment of in-person and online, which many were forced to get comfortable with through the pandemic. How has that changed your advice to founders and your program that you run? I think it's changed everything. I, one of the things that we used to recommend was that the tech talent had to be in-house. Tech is such a weird thing. It's, you can't plot it out and know exactly what's going to happen at any moment. When you're building something, things change and not everything works. And it takes a lot of iteration and creativity. It also takes multiple people with different skill sets. There are a few, despite what you heard, there's not that many unicorn full stack developers who can do everything. You actually need a lot of different people to contribute to the product. So we used to say all of that should be in-house. Now, because people have gotten good at working remotely, for tech nonprofits, it can make a huge difference to outsource parts of the technology, outsource the design or parts of the development or the data architecture. We still believe it's really helpful to have a co-founder or a founder that's technical because managing remote developers is hard. It's really hard, but you can get a lot done with a lot less people on your payroll in this new hybrid world. And to me, that's actually like a profound shift. Does it mean that you can get more done with less donor dollars? Yes. You can get more done with less money and sort of without the monthly cash flow crunch. That's great. Yeah, and it, are you, it really helps. <laughs> are you also running the program in a hybrid way now? We are, and that has been one of the magical surprises of the pandemic. We initially, we did had to do everything virtually. And one of the beauties of that is we were able to get mentors for the founders from all kinds of tech companies all over the world aligned with the needs and interests of the founders. So it really just unlocked thousands of sort of impact curious technical people to be able to give their time, attention, and sometimes funding to these organizations. It's been like a really serendipitous result of the pandemic. Today, we run it a little bit in person and a little bit online. There is something about being with humans who are also working on wicked problems and are committed to it as their life's work that's particularly special. So it matters to be in person to build the human connection. So we sort of bookend the program in person for the first week and in person for the last couple of weeks, but in the middle, everything is virtual. And does that change the kind of participants that you're able to get? You said it changed the mentors. What about the founder side? Yeah, we have far more non-US applicants, which is awesome. There are all these groups throughout the world that are sort of in these nodules of tech for good. We see a lot coming from Kenya. We see a bunch coming from Germany. We've increasingly seen some from the UK. We've seen some from Mexico that there are these clusters of entrepreneurs that often they know each other. Then they hear about fast forward and then they apply. And we've been tracking them over the last three years. It's been really exciting. The sector's at about a thousand organizations globally at the moment. And we used to not hear, there were a few years there where we didn't hear about that many new ones. And now post-pandemic, we're hearing about huge growth in the sector. It's exciting. That's really great to hear. Congratulations Thanks. on all your growth and your global reputation, it sounds like, thank as well you. as the new growth accelerator. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Miles. I appreciate it. I've been a big fan and I look forward to following along to see what else you do. <laughs> thank you. Back at you.
All right. Take care. Take care. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by PurposeBuilt, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.